a vampire Christian is a Christian who wants Jesus just for his blood. They don't want him for his lordship. Man. And his lordship is so important. And that means you can't be autonomous. You are a bondservant of Christ. And that's why it's important for us to, to keep in, in mind that this culture can easily seduce us away. Welcome to the Stream Roots Podcast, where you'll learn how God's unchanging truth can be applied in our ever-changing world. Through conversations with pastors and ministry leaders, you'll be encouraged, equipped, and challenged in walk with Christ. Stream Roots is designed for pastors and leaders in the church, but is helpful for all people. And now your host, Pastor Mark Pospisil. Welcome to this episode of Stream Roots, our part two of dealing with the toughest challenges to the Christian faith. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that. It was excellent. Uh, we do have back here for this episode, Abdu Murray to finish what he started. And uh, we're grateful for him being back. Uh, Abdu, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me back. Uh, what a great episode. Enlightening. I've uh, taken down many notes from that. Uh, I will be borrowing, I will be quoting you, but borrowing those in my upcoming messages. Feel free. <laughs> Absolutely. My hand hurts. <laughs> I, I do, uh, based on, based on the, the previous conversation we had, you know, we talked about autonomy and um, truth being found in scripture, obviously. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions that I wanted to pose to you is this, is can you be autonomous with also claiming Christ? There's mm -hmm. that dichotomy between the two. And I don't, is that possible? Mm, what, so I think that's a great question. And I think that uh, understood, autonomy understood in the context with which I've described it, which is a cultural uh, push and a personal push to make freedom, which is a good thing, into something more, which is autonomy, which is to be the sovereign. Autos self, namos law, to be a law unto yourself. Um, interestingly enough, the Bible actually answers this question, I think, uh, quite well. Um, when you look at the Garden of Eden story, Adam and Eve, the start story there, um, you see the birth of a post-truth culture in the very first people, the very first culture. Um, so the post-truth culture, uh, as a reminder, is a culture that elevates feelings and preferences above facts and truth. So it doesn't deny that the truth is there. It just elevates feelings and preferences above them. And so it subordinates truth to our preferences. So what do you have in the Garden of Eden story? You have God fashioning Adam and Eve to be in communion with each other and with him. Their very purpose, God walks and talks with them in the cool of the day, Genesis says. Their purpose is communion with God, and he gives them this wonderful garden, and they can eat of any tree in the garden, any one they want, just the one they cannot eat of, which is the knowledge of good and evil, the, tr the fruit of the knowledge, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they cannot eat. That's what it says. They cannot eat it. So, and we don't know how long they lived with that rule, and it never bothered them. They never were tempted. The Bible doesn't say, and they struggled with this temptation their whole lives. It doesn't say that. So they could have lived millennia, for all we know, before the aging process stepped in. We have no idea. Um, it could have been just the, the, the years that the Bible records, or the, year, the Bible could be recording the years starting from the time when age began, when they fell from grace. But what happens? The serpent comes to Eve and says, did God really say? Yep. And he misquotes God. And then Eve misquotes him back, misquotes God and says, no, God said we can't even touch it. Yep. He never said that. That is autonomy. She is taking God's word 
And she's actually, and ironically, she's making it more restrictive than it ought to be. Mm. He just said, don't eat it. Right. He didn't say, don't touch it. He said, don't eat it. And so she has taken upon herself, and by proxy, her husband has also taken upon himself the wherewithal to dictate to God what his rules are. Autonomy. Her, the, so their, their, the truth of their existence was they were supposed to be with God. Their preference was to be God. And so their preference mattered more than the truth. And that's when suddenly this fruit, which never tempted Eve before, became tempting. Which never tempted Adam before, became tempting. When Satan says, God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will not surely die, but you will be like him. They wanted to be like him. They didn't want to be with him. And that was the subtlety of the truth that they murdered. They murdered the truth that they were supposed to be with him. And that's why they were expelled, because they did not want that. They wanted to be him. That's why I think the autonomous post-truth culture, the seeds of that were planted in the very first garden. Wow. And now the fruit has come to fruition now. So I think that this quest for autonomy, it's one thing to be autonomous in terms of I'm an independent person. I don't need to rely on the government or rely on a husband or rely on a wife. I, I get all that. That isn't the sense that we're talking about. This is the sense we're talking about is the determiner of reality, of morality. We're essentially eating from the fruit and saying we get to determine good and evil. And that's why autonomy, I don't think, can actually coexist with um, profession of Christ. Because what does the Bible say? You, uh, in Romans, what, to, to be saved, it's very simple. You confess with your mouth that Christ rose from the dead and that Jesus is Lord, not just Savior. Mm. I think it was Dallas Willard who said, who coined the phrase vampire Christian, a vampire Christian is somebody who wants Jesus just for his blood. They don't want him for his Ooh. lordship. Mm. Um, say, say that again, Abdu. That was good. Yeah. Um, I wish I had thought of it. Um, <laughs> Look at you, John. <laughs> a vampire Christian is a Christian who wants Jesus just for his blood. They don't want him for his lordship. Man. And his lordship is so important. And that means you can't be autonomous. You are a bondservant of Christ. And that's why it's important for us to, to keep in, in mind that this culture can easily seduce us away. We're all, every, Abdu Murray is easily seducible to his own desires for autonomy. Everybody is. It's not just them out there. It's sure. us in here. Sure, yeah. And so, the, the, in fact, I would say one of the toughest challenges to Christianity is a Christian. Each individual one has their own challenge of trying to subordinate their own sovereignty to God's sovereignty. We're called to die to ourselves every day. Amen. I mean, and I mean, how many times can the Bible say it? I mean, think of others as more significant than yourself. I mean, how many times does the Bible have to say, pride is the problem um, uh, before we get it? Uh, and I think that um, a Christian is someone who recognizes that human pride is the problem, that Christ came to die for the sin primarily of pride and the desire to be autonomous. Love it. Love it. John, you're doing a great job over there. It is. <laughs> if you want to like just kick back and throw off your mic or I'm, whatever. I'm having fine. fun. This is great. Um I like that. I like mm. yeah, the subordinate our sovereignty to God's sovereignty. And, and that, you know, Jesus says you, you cannot be my disciple mm-hmm. unless you pick up your cross, die mm-hmm. to yourself and follow me. Amen. So all right, love it. I love it. Mm. All right. So I do, you know, as we continue on our discussion here and piggybacking off of last week and even what we just talked about right there, which mm-hmm. was itself was amazing. 
Um, what are effective ways to deal with these issues that are church is facing, that Christians are facing today? How can we deal with them head on? What are some effective ways of doing that? Um, I think there are some effective ways to do it in terms of, first, we have to recognize the principles. Once again, is to, is to say, what are the effective principles we have to act under uh, before as we engage people on these issues? And it goes right back to um, something I think I said the first time I was uh, a guest on the show, which is Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, where we are to let our speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so we know how we ought to answer each person. We answer people not issues, not objections, not questions, uh, because those things don't need answers. But people do need answers, and they use those things to get them. So I think the first principle uh, that underpins how we interact with people is to recognize every person, no matter how angry they are at God, no matter how much fist-shaking they do, no matter how angry they are, and they equate evangelicalism with sort of uh, uh, white, cisgendered, Republican, whatever. however they do that, that person is made in God's image. And so what you say and what you do has an impact on an image bearer. And that is the primary um, consideration in the, in, in the exchange. Only, I, say, I guess I would say it's secondarily only to God's glory. But God is glorified in you treating one of his creation like he made that person. Mm. So yes, God's glory is the primary consideration, but treating someone like they were made in God's image glorifies God. So that's the primary goal, which means that we have to engage in as much winsomeness in our conduct as humanly possible, which I think is best done, practically speaking, through questions, not answers, um, not statements. You know, I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said that the biggest myth about communication is the belief that it actually has happened. Um, people want to hear themselves talk. Um, and everyone's guilty of this. Uh, we want to make sure that the person gets done speaking so that we can start, um, as opposed to really listening and hearing someone. Um, but if we ask questions, that's one of the best ways to get to the heart of the matter, is asking questions, where did you come to this conclusion? Can you show me where in the Bible you see this? Or what are the ways in which you've seen the church actually equate um, the gospel with politics, whatever it might be. And, and then listen. You might not agree, but you don't have to agree to listen. Just listen. Um, you know what kind of a compliment that pays a person? What kind of a dignity and respect and honor you give to someone just by saying, I want to listen to you no matter how distasteful I find your opinions or how uncomfortable they make me. Um, so just listening and asking a question is one of the greatest ways you can actually show someone that you value them as someone made in God's image. I think that then another, another aspect, though, is to be willing to hear hard things. Um, so if one of the biggest barriers, and I, I do think one of the biggest barriers uh, out there right now ask, that, that leads to the conclusion that maybe the Bible and maybe Christianity isn't false, but it's actually bad, um, is the church has not always done the greatest job with some of the issues we see today um, or even in the past. I mean, there's a charge that the church was complicit in uh, slavery and in Jim Crow. And you can't say, no, uh you can't. You can't be a student of history and say that didn't happen. It did happen. It did happen, and you have to acknowledge it. We have to acknowledge the fact that the church has not been stellar, especially of recent vintage, on gender equality. Um, 
we have to acknowledge that and, and, and listen to that. However, the church has also been a champion in these areas as well. And we have to be able to explain that too. So it is a, the church is the body of Christ, but it is an imperfect body of Christ. It is the bride waiting to be purified. We're being sanctified day by day. We get plenty of things wrong, but the reality is, is that without the Holy Spirit, I believe, inspiring and infusing the church with that which has helped society, we'd be far worse off, far worse off. So listen, be able to hear the uncomfortable things, acknowledge them without being defensive, and then say, have you also considered the following? And then take action to actually change that which we have not done well, but build on that which we have done well. We can't throw out the good of, of Christian history just so we can acknowledge the bad. We can do both at the same time. I think that's an important way to do it as well. But then sit down with somebody and say, okay, what are your objections? What do you have to say about this? Let's hear some things out. And by the way, questions have a wonderful way of bringing to the surface things like people say things and they're objecting to certain things simply because they've heard other people object to them and say them. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a objection, um, you know, the Bible is inherently sexist. Uh, where does it say that? And this is from a person who has almost no biblical literacy whatsoever. Now, occasionally they do have some quite a bit of biblical literacy, and they'll tell me, oh, it says it here, it says it here. It's great. Now we can have a conversation. But people who just repeat tropes, who repeat the bumper sticker kind of stuff, that's difficult sometimes because they're not really saying anything that's actually true. They're just saying it because they heard someone else say it. I'm going to give a bit of a ridiculous, a ridiculous example of this, but I hope it illustrates the point. And it's not really related to sex um, uh, equality or, um, uh, or racial equality. But I was talking to a young man, a very, very bright young man, uh, going to be studying philosophy at a major, major university in the, in the United States. And we're having a back and forth discussion about the Bible. And he says, I object to the Bible because... It just seems to me that an infinite God with an infinite intelligence and infinite resources would just have done things better. I'm like, well, give me an example. And he gave the example of uh, when God strikes the man down for touching the ark. It's like, why would he kill that guy for touching the ark? It seems immoral. The guy just wanted to keep it from hitting the ground. Like, okay, well, have you read the context of this? And uh, God had actually told them. He warned them ahead of time. You've got to carry it this way. I don't want animals carrying it on a cart. I want you carrying it. And it has to be this kind of wood and this kind of thing and all that. In other words, show some respect. And so they don't do that. They disobey him. The cart that they bring that they bring the ark on breaks. It's going to fall in the mud. And this guy suddenly decides that although we've disobeyed God's law, I'm going to be righteous enough to touch this ark that God had me carry in a certain way, but I refuse to do it his way. And so he strikes him dead. There's a whole context to this. What was interesting was this, is that he later asked this question. He said, and, and, and it was hard because a crowd had gathered around us. He said, okay, fine, but here's my problem. Why would he kill that guy for touching the ark when he let Noah's whole family live on it? Oh, my. <laughs> right? He didn't realize there's two arcs. One's a box, one's a boat. Um, now... I, there's a moan and a groan in the audience who's, who, heard, who heard it. But here's the question now. I just heard this from a guy who's asking a, a sincere question in a crowd. 
what do I do? Do I embarrass him? I mean, he sort of did it to himself because there's Christians in the audience who went, oh my goodness, they knew what had happened here. My point in sharing the story was this. Here's a guy who had just heard other people talking about the Bible. He'd never actually read the Bible to critique it. So I pulled him over and I I whispered into his ear. I said, hey, I'm going to answer your question in a second, but I want you to realize there are two arcs. One is a box that carries the Ten Commandments. The other is a boat that carried six people so that they wouldn't, so that the universe, so that the world wouldn't perish. There are two different arcs and you didn't read, you clearly didn't read the Bible because if you had read the Bible, you would know they're not the same thing. Um, and so I, 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 and I admonished him. I, I simply said, my encouragement to you is if you're going to critique something, you should actually read it, not take someone else's word for it or cobble together something that you think someone says. I think this applies to the charge that the Bible is racist and sexist in the same way is that oftentimes, not always, not always, but oftentimes people repeat this because they see something, they hear something, they see certain churches acting in certain ways, holding up certain signs um, that, you know, the Bible's inherently homophobic or God hates gay people because I saw that church with, you know, protesting outside of that funeral with those signs that say God hates gays and they have a scripture quote underneath it. Um, And that solves it for me. That's all I need. Well, there's more to it than that. And so I think one way, effective way to deal with these is to actually sit down with somebody and say, where did you get this? How did you come to this conclusion? Hear them and then respond and say, okay, if we're going to take this book seriously enough to reject it, let's take it seriously enough first to read it and go through it with them, I think, side by side. Because there are great answers on the slavery question. There's great answers on this. And there's some tough, there's some tough language in the Bible. We have to figure out how to deal with it. But, but it can be dealt with. We just have to take the time to do it. There's some tough language about women in the Bible. And you think, my goodness, how in the world is this not sexist? There's ways to talk about that. There really are, if you understand the context. Mm, yeah, I love it. So just to recap your points here, right? Ask questions. Mm-hmm. You know, and Jesus was a master and asking questions mm-hmm. uh, all the time, you yeah. know, um, ra- you know, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, you know, he just, he just asks questions, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, and he's always, yeah, how do you, like, what's, what does the law say? How do you read it? Yeah. How do you read it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah what does the law say? And, and good teacher, you mm-hmm. know, look at it. What must I do? You know? And he's like, why do you call me good? Mm-hmm. There's only one who is good, but it's God. Yeah. And uh, so, so all over the place he's doing that, but ask questions. It probes people's heart. Be willing to hear the hard things, mm-hmm. actually listen to the person's answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not there to win an argument. You're not there to, to embarrass somebody. I like how you handle that. You know, but why did Noah, why did God let Noah live on that one? He didn't, yeah. he didn't just laugh him off. You're like, hey man, you know, it's a whole different arc. That's a boat. Mm-hmm. You know, there's yeah. all different things. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the third is like, take action and build on what you can, the good things. And also if there's things that you can correct, do it. Yeah. Those are ways to handle those issues Yeah. in in a good biblical way yeah. of what, what our culture is asking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that if um, you have that credibility then the answers come out of your mouth after that. Don't sound like rationalizations. I mean, one of the example is um, the Bible and race and slavery. So someone might say, well, the Bible condones slavery because there are laws about how to own slaves. The response to that is the word eved um, in uh, the Bible 
my name, by the way, Abdu, is Semitic. Uh, it's Arabic, and uh, Arabic and, uh, and Hebrew share the same root, Semitic roots. And so the word for slave in Arabic is Abed, and the Hebrew word for slave in, uh, 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 word for slave in Hebrew is Aved. It's the same thing. My name, Abdu, literally means his slave, meaning God's slave or God's servant. And this is the important part. That word can mean slave or it can mean servant, voluntary. And so what you see in the Bible actually is a system of indentured servitude that is voluntary. People are not brought into slavery involuntarily. They're brought in voluntarily to pay off a debt. And so it's nothing like antebellum Southern slavery. It's nothing like that. But because of the word slavery has such a connotation, especially in the West, anytime the word slave or a word that could be translated slave is used, we automatically equate it to antebellum Southern slavery or North Atlantic slave trade. It's not the same thing. Um, and you see this throughout the, the um, specifics. In, in more than a white man's religion, I go into the detail about how these, these, um, these laws in the, the Old Testament don't actually condone slavery. What they do is they regulate indentured servitude, which is a voluntary affair, but they regulate it in such a way as to abolish it. The regulations actually exist so that no one falls into indentured servitude, which is why every seven years, no matter how many debts you still have to pay, you're set free. You could have, and, and, and the year of Jubilee, if, you're, if your seven years is not up and you, still, you, just, you just started your indentured servitude seven minutes ago, on the year of Jubilee, you're all set free. So immediately, and by the way, this is interesting as well, is that the Bible actually requires the Adon, the Lord, or the, the master of the indentured servant. When the indentured servant goes free, whether he's paid his debt off through his, his labor uh, or her labor, or is just set free from Jubilee or whatever it might be, the Adon is required to give the indentured servant, now freed of his obligations, of his own cattle, of his own animals, of his own property so that he can start a life over on his own. In other words, so he does not fall into indentured servitude again. Now, that is interesting because in this country right now, we're having a debate over reparations, whether or not African Americans should be given reparations from the government, which means everybody else in terms of tax dollars, et cetera, to make repair for the damage done because of slavery and and, uh, other discriminations. Now, I'm not going to weigh in on whether or not we should do that. My point is this, is that during the reconstruction phase of the Civil War, Civil War is over, emancipation is a reality, and all this. It was, uh, I think it was W.B. Du Bois who said, for one moment, the slave was free, but free to what? And then they walked into a world of the wilderness with nothing but the clothes on their backs, and they walked back into an economic slavery, essentially. Had we actually followed what the Bible says and taken something from the actual slave owners or from the Southern, you know, the treasury, whatever it is, I don't know what it would have been, but exactly, but from those who actually enslaved those folks and gave them something to start a life off with, we wouldn't even be having the reparations debate today because we would have followed what the Bible said. So instead of believing that the Bible actually condoned a perpetual slave trade where people were owned as property, if we understand its proper context, we see that the Bible allowed for people to get out of debt by working off their debt, but also allowed for freedom that led to true economic freedom and independence that avoided the problem in the first place. Had we done that, instead of shunning the Bible as a racist document, as a slave uh, 
um, uh, a slavery uh, favoring document and realizing it's actually against this whole institution, maybe we would see things differently. Maybe we would have behaved differently in the first place. Then we see this in the life of Jesus as well. Jesus deals with ethnic differences so beautifully. I can go on and on and on about the various, the various examples, but let me just give one quick example of the way Jesus dealt with ethnic animosity. Um, so you have Jesus' disciples. They don't like Samaritans because they're Jews. And the Bible in John chapter 4 makes great pain to point out Samaritans and Jews don't like each other. And there's this whole animus that's there. There's a religious animus. There's an ethnic animus. There's a geographical animus. Which temple? The one in Mount Gerizim where the, where the Samaritans uh, worshipped or the temple in Jerusalem? Is that the one? It, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well encountering Jesus. She says, this is our father Jacob's well, not you, us. There's an us-you thing going on all over the place in that encounter. And what does Jesus do? He says, salvation is of the Jews, but salvation for the world is of the Jews. In other words, it comes from us, but it's for everyone. And he gives this Samaritan such worth and such value, and he unmasks her whole life of all the trouble she's put herself in and others have subjected her to, and then basically says, I'm the Messiah. I'm your Messiah. And she's so excited by what she's heard that she leaves her water jug there at the well. That's the very reason she went. And she runs back to a village who also reject her for her perceived moral problems. And she's so fired up that this village comes and spends days with Jesus. This, this, this village of Samaritans who hate Jews come and spend a three-day time with Jesus, this Jewish man, and then come to believe that this Jewish man not a Samaritan, but a Jew, is the savior of the world. That is racial reconciliation. That is the way to do it because Jesus affirms the struggles, but he affirms the value and says, but never compromises on the truth. That's one instance, and I, can, and I give in the book, but I, I can give many instances of the way Jesus challenged ethnic animosities. He taught his own disciples a lesson in that story. And he taught his disciples a lesson when he dealt with a Syrophoenician woman as well, who said, you know, that um, even the, the dogs uh, get the, 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 the scraps that fall from the master's table. And he says, this woman has exercised great faith. Um, and I can go into the intricacies of that, and there's so much beauty there. Through the life of Jesus, through the lens of his life, we see that the Bible's strictures against ethnic animosity are, are really made, made true and in, 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 uh, applicable in Jesus. Go to the sex issue, uh, the gender disparities, you know, whether women should be lesser than men or whatever. And you see this common story. You see the story of Mary and Martha. And this one always gets me because um, it's right for us to preach that we can't get so busy in our lives. The whole point, Martha is the paradigm for busyness, right? So Martha is busy trying to make a good party, trying to make a good time uh, and be a good Middle Eastern hospitality woman uh, by bringing um, uh, all the food and all the preparations to bear so that when Jesus and his disciples and their friends are all there gathered for the banquet that they are, they're treated hospitably, which is a cardinal virtue in the Middle East. And then Mary, her sister, is over there just lollygagging, hanging out with Jesus, talking about stuff. And so Jesus says to her, you know, Martha, you are worried about many things, but only one thing is needful. Mary has chosen what is better. She, in other words, pay attention to Jesus. Stop and smell the roses. Don't be so busy that you don't you know, spend time with the Lord. 
that is the par- that that is the lesson we normally get out of that story, and it's the right lesson. It's a good lesson. It's valid. The scripture teaches it. Here's a subtlety we miss: Mary, Martha's sister, and Martha were, as women in the first century, denied an education. They were denied an education, and the phrase the Bible uses specifically was that Mary sat at Jesus's feet. That is a phrase that was meant for the students of a rabbi given to men who were bestowed a great honor by getting an education from a renowned rabbi. So it's an honorific to sit at a rabbi's feet. Mary chose her own free will. She was not forced to the education. She chose it. And Jesus said, you have been denied your free will of an education. You've decided to exercise your free will. And because you are such an equal to every man who is entitled to sit at my feet, I have given you this. And then when Martha basically says, Jesus, I'm in the kitchen. A woman's place is in the kitchen. Put Mary in her place. Jesus says, She has chosen what is better, her own free will, and it will not be taken from her. Martha, not even by you. Get out of the mentality that you are second class, Martha. This is better. Use your free will. Jesus gives her that free will. Sorry, he he, acknowledges her free will, but as the creator of women, he's the one who can actually not only give it to them, but then vouchsafe it in that expression of education. That's just a small example of the way in which Jesus vaunted women to their rightful places equal to men um, in a hostile culture that absolutely way worse than today's culture um, denigrated women as second-class citizens. That's why Michael Kruger, Michael Byrd, and others have pointed out that the first century church was comprised of women and children in the majority. Mm. Not because Jesus is sexist, not because the Christian message was a sexist message, but because it was the exact opposite of that. They had enough sexism from Roman paganism and uh, the uh, sort of a pharisaical Judaism of their time. They had enough of that. What they saw in the biblical Judaism of the first early church was an equality for all women. The same Bible that made Deborah a judge over men, that made Huldah and others prophetesses that spoke on behalf of God. Uh, Ruth and, um, and uh, Naomi and Esther, heroes of the faith, they saw in this Jesus someone who actually championed the rights of women. That's why they flocked to Jesus. In fact, it was the Romans who made fun of the Christian faith as a religion meant for women and children. Not because it was sexist, but because it was the opposite of that. So the charge cannot be laid at Jesus' feet. Can it be laid at our feet that we have not acted in, in equal ways towards women? I think the answer is probably yeah. But we cannot lay that at Jesus' feet. And so we ignore him at our peril. And I think that this society would be so much better off if we just followed what he did and what he said. I agree wholeheartedly with that. <laughs> we would just do what he says. Yeah. If we followed him and do what he said, everything would be fantastic, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. I think to piggyback off a little bit of what you said, to uh, I heard a lady in a different culture, honor, shame culture, Asian culture, um, where the firstborn son was the one who was highly exalted, and, and she was she was below uh, her brother, mm-hmm. and she always was treated as second class in her family. Mm-hmm. 
and and she she knew it. She experienced that. She she was all that was part of her life growing up. And the brother was always the one highly valued by the parents and the grandparents and all of that. And then she was reading the Bible in Galatians, where it says, "You are all sons of God in Christ Jesus." And some people are like, "Well, we got to get rid of that gender language," but like that son's position isn't gender. It's a it's a, it's a position of like this the status of the firstborn. Mm-hmm. And she's like, "That was the first time I recognized." my value and worth through Christ that I am of equal standing with my brother. That was the first time anybody in my life ever said that to me. Mm. And I came from the words of in Galatians. Oh. It's amazing to me how um, in one of these days, I'll probably write a book on, on this as well is the Bible. is its own defender. Um, uh, there's plenty of extra biblical sources to, to talk about the truth of the Christian message. But I remember I was at a, um, that's a good story, Mark. I mean, I remember I was at a store, I was at a, uh, university, and a young lady was at the microphone uh, of African descent. I believe she was Somali, and she is she was uh, Muslim. Although it's interesting what she said. She said, "I'm from a Muslim background," and I'm going to paraphrase her, her her question because uh, I have it down I, somewhere else. I just don't have it in my head uh, perfectly. But she basically said, "I love the way Jesus says that men are to love their wives." as Christ loves the church. Um, and she was wrestling with the way her relig- the religion of her birth treats women as second class and maybe even property uh, in some ways of men, like, you know, because they can marry up to four women and this kind of thing. Uh, and she didn't like that. She doesn't like the polygamy uh, of the religion of her birth. So um, she said, I love the way it says this. And she wanted to know, could she be a Muslim and a Christian at the same time? Mm. And I said, you know, I, I want to I come back on something, is that you love the way that the Bible says that men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Um, there's another phrase to that. And, and gave his life for it. Men are to give their lives for their wives. And so it's not a matter of my authority is given to me so that you submit your life to me. My authority is given to me so that I submit my life to you. I have given, I've been given authority that is self-sacrificial authority, much like Christ, who had authority over all things, gave his life. That's self-sacrificial, and that's the cause of Christ. The reason why you can't be thus and such and a Christian of various religious beliefs is because all other belief systems essentially say, if you do enough good things, you can earn heaven. The Christian faith says, God knows you can't earn it. And so he sacrifices his own son so that he can pay the debt you owe. And that that is self-sacrificial, which is why Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's other versions of that. Islam has a version of that. The Hindus have a version of that. The Buddhists have a version of that. Atheists have a version of that golden rule. The reason why the Christian message is unique in the way it says it is because it says, it doesn't say do unto others so that they will do unto you. It doesn't say do unto others uh, good so that they won't do bad things to you. The first one is self-seeking, do good things so good things happen. The other one is self-protective, do good things so bad things won't happen. Jesus is self-sacrificial, and he says, 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In other words, do good things to others even if they never do good things to you. Don't be self-protective. Don't be self-seeking. Be self-sacrificial. And that's the fundamental difference in the Christian faith. And I think that these questions about equality, these questions about justice, these questions about fairness, they lead us inexorably to the person of Christ who says to a Samaritan woman, who says to a Roman centurion, Samaritan woman has no power. The Roman centurion has all the power. He says, your faith can make you well. He gives it equally to everyone, the powered and the powerless, the, the Jew and the Gentile, the male and the female. And I think if we can recognize this beauty of the, of the Christian message and really get into the words and the life of Jesus and we read all of the other words of the scriptures through the lens of the life of, life, life of Jesus, I think that we'll have much more winsome of a witness and be able to answer these extremely tough questions. Love it. Absolutely love it. It's mm. like you should write a book. <laughs> I'll get on that. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> I already have. <laughs> mm. Well, thank you for that. that that's, that's, that's very gracious of you. Thank you. Yeah. Specific examples we talked about, those are good ones. And I guess we can just t- you pretty much talk all day about these, you mm-hmm. know, just different examples. Well, there's so many. Like the slave, you know, Exodus. Like if the slave loves his owner, he mm-hmm. can have his ear put with a, like a nail or an mm-hmm. awl through through the door. It's like, I don't want to go anywhere. I want to be here. Right. Like that doesn't sound like, and then, you know, that doesn't sound like something that's bad. Right. right. That sounds like I, I love this master so much. You know, what's interesting. Can I just, uh, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, I, you you know, just go. <laughs> so I, I, I think of this book, uh, uh, Philemon. Yes. Or Philemon. I don't know how, how, who, who, who taught you Greek. Um, uh, and you think to yourself, why does this short little book where Paul basically mediates a dispute why does this swell the pages of scripture why why is it even in there and of course you have the freed slave onesimus and paul is basically saying charge his debt whatever it is to me that's not a guy who condones slavery that's a guy who wants it to end Mm. but what's interesting is is that later on in the bible and i'm forgetting exactly where it is onesimus is brought back up again and onesimus is being sent back to the very community he ran away from um and Paul says he's being sent back to you as one of you. In other words, you're, he's your equal. So even though Paul was dealing with chattel slavery in his day under the Roman system, not under the Jewish system, but under the Roman system, when a slave is freed, and Paul rejoices in that freedom, he sends him back, not as that guy who was once a slave, but as one of you, the equality of it all. That one book all by itself, you can take a lot of out of uh, Philemon, but if you just took one thing out of it, it was that Paul acted Christ-like in being willing to take on Philemon's, uh, sorry, Onesimus's debt unto himself, which is exactly what Jesus did for all of us. But then later on in the Bible, he returns Onesimus to that community as an equal. That itself ought to spell for us the doom of this idea that the Bible condones slavery or the Bible condones inequalities. It doesn't condone inequalities. It condones the redemption of those who are perceived to be unequal to become to come back as equals because they're all made in God's image. It's awesome. I love it. Should we keep talking? 
All I have to do is restart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Abdu? Well, uh, if, uh, if time permits, I have a little bit of a, of a day. Um, but uh, <laughs> it has been a lot of fun um, to be with you guys. Let's, uh, if you want to keep going, we can keep going for, for uh, how, how about you just give us a few resources? Oh, okay. Let's do that. Let's do that. Oh. <laughs> well, it's another another reason to come back on. Yeah. I think. I think. Yeah, I we'll, think. I think we would love to have you back on. Hey, okay. real quick. Do yeah. you you ever hear of Sylvan Table? Sylvan the, Table. Yeah, the restaurant's over in. Uh, it's right by Bloomfield Hills. No. I'm gonna get you a gift card for there. If you oh, like all right. Well, it's like hey. a farm to table restaurant. All right. So just for your time here, um, just wanted to. So just a little, you, you ever, little you, benefit. You, you ever, Hopefully you, you'll come back. You got to come back to get it though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, right. That's. Uh, I just got all excited and you, you hooked me in. And oh. I, I think I may have said yes on the air before you decided to <laughs> pick and switch me on that one. I should have been a lawyer. Um, uh, you ever hear the uh, you know that there's the five love languages? Yeah. Um, Gary Chapman. Uh, yeah, Gary Chapman's five love languages. I think he missed one. Sarcasm? Uh, uh, food. Food. Oh, oh yeah. food. I, that's like my... I, I, I think food yeah. is a love language. It's, I, I, and I actually believe that. I actually believe that food is a love language, uh, and I speak fluent food. Oh, mm. good. I like that. Yeah. Okay. I'm yeah. going to get you one, but you, you don't have to come back, even though we want you back. No, it'd be a yeah. pleasure. It'd be an honor to come back. Courtney yeah. and I often say that sarcasm was often missed mm. as one of the love languages. Yeah, I can, yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. Depends on who you're talking to, of course. Oh, yeah. So. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, but as far as resources go... Um, obviously, you know, uh, in, a, in a self-serving way, I would say look for more than a white man's religion. Um, uh, I think a great book, by the way, uh, for how to have hard conversations is um, it's, it's, it's more of a how-to than it is uh, a substantive. In other words, here's the answers. It gives you how to have con- conversations. It's called Tactics okay. by Greg Kokel, K-O-U-K-L. Um, and he goes through a game plan. In fact, I think the, the, the subtitle is a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. Mm. Um, so a great book um, uh, on that as well. Um, uh, books by Michael Bird um, uh, or Michael Kruger on early church. Michael um, Kruger's got some really good yeah, stuff. Yeah, he does. He does, in fact, have some really great stuff. Um, uh, John Dixon um, is another guy who's got some really good stuff on early church and history. Um, he's got a book called Saints and Bullies, um, where he talks, it's through Zonervan. It's about, um, dealing with the fact that the church hasn't always been great, but it's, but it has been great at some points too. In fact, uh, um, well, I was thinking about, uh, a resource, um, but a quote actually from a guy named Marcelo Pera. Maybe this will wrap up everything, uh, neatly. Um, Marcelo Pera is an atheist, He's an atheist Italian philosopher and a, um, uh, I think it was a senator, Italian senator for a while. And he wrote um, an essay um, about how Christianity is necessary to European identity. Huh. Um, and this is what he says at the end of it. Um, he says, have the concepts of liberté, égalité, and fraternité, you know, liberty, freedom, uh, liberty, equality, and brotherhood. Have these concepts by any chance been invented by Madame Mallard, who is this pretty French actress who stands up like in the French Revolution and says these words? Or is it rather the case that the pretty French actress recited in her own way lines read, for example, in the Gospels? Does not this old-fashioned booklet teach that men are the Son of God, created in His image, and therefore free, equal, and united by the same destiny? True, he says, it took a long time and many troubles and tragedies to understand this message, but that means that the Enlightenment was late, not that it was new. In other words, all these ideas from the Enlightenment and our outrage today are not really new ideas. Mm. They're just late. Yeah. Um, but they're borrowed from 
this, what he says, old-fashioned booklet of, of the Bible. So um, I look at those resources we talked about um, as places to find this kind of material because I think that the, the non-Christian world uh, does recognize that um, the liberté, egalité, and fraternité um, are gospel ideas. Love it. Love it. And if I can recommend another book too, um, which I love that quote, I'm going to go back and listen to it and write it down. <laughs> uh, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth is a is a really good book dealing with uh, various authors have that each issue going on today and how to uh, confront injustice without compromising the truth of what the gospel teaches, what the word of God teaches, actually how, pretty much what we discussed here, how the Bible has the answers God is a God of justice. Mm. God has got a mishpah, according to the Hebrew word, mm-hmm. and righteousness. And so, um, it, those are the those are all the answers are found. Like there, it's nothing. It's, it's nothing new. Mm-hmm. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. And mm-hmm. God has given us the truth. And so, so I'm really looking forward. I, to- I do recommend also Esau Macaulay's Reading While Black. Reading While Black. Okay. Reading While Black. I think it's a good book that uh, gives a really good insight into um, some scriptural issues and also some social issues. Okay. Love yeah. it. Mark, do you know who the author was for your book? Yes, Thaddeus Williams is the author, but it's put together by a ton of people. Um, That's fine. I just want to make sure I can link it correctly. Yes, so Thaddeus Williams, it's it's just, uh, you know, for example, like ooh, John Perkins, Elisa uh, mm. Childers, J.P. Moreland. You Perfect. just got people from all over the spectrum and every issue you can imagine. Mm. So it's a thick book, but it's nice that each chapter is broken down. So. Mm. Very good. Okay, that's my contribution to this podcast. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's, let's sign off here. <laughs> but, uh, Abdu, thank you so much. What a pleasure. For your wisdom. Pleasure's all ours. Yeah, seriously. Pleasure's all your, ours, and just really appreciate you and your love for the Lord, defender of the faith. Great to call you a brother, uh, call you a friend, mm. and uh, we're big advocates of you, of you over here. So thank you. looking forward to what the Lord has for you, the future of Embrace the Truth. Well, thank you. And I'm going to buy your book right away. Okay, and my okay. church will, too. <laughs> oh, good. Good. All right. All right. That's a good start. <laughs> Let me sign off here. Uh, StreamYurts is a production of Barnabas Ministries. You can learn more at BarnabasMinistriesMI.org. BarnabasMinistriesMI.org. Uh, we release an episode of Stremutes every Monday morning, and we would love if you subscribed or rated our podcast. Uh, Stremutes drawing deep from the living water of God's Word.